This is The Granite Beat, and I'm Julie Hart. This is a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. For this, our debut episode, we've invited someone we've worked with and respected for years. Michael Mortensen covers courts and cops, among other topics, for the Laconia Daily Sun and has established a reputation for accuracy and professionalism. He's a U.S. Navy veteran who has covered the Lakes region since 1979, including roles on various editing desks along the way. As evidence of what his peers think about him, the New Hampshire Press Association gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2021. Lately, Mike has been following two stories which have captured the attention of readers, the murder trial of Hassan Sapri and the state and federal charges against John Murray, the former manager of the West Alton Marina. Thank you, Mike, for agreeing to join us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. I will also add that Mike is the kind of guy that if he parks a little bit crooked in a parking spot, he'll get back in his car and fix that parking job. I witnessed that today myself. So, I'm Adam Drapshow, by the way. Mike, could you explain what we mean when we say the courts and cops beat, what that means for you and how you spend your work day? How does potential stories come your way? How do you and your editors decide which are worthy of your time and how do you go about researching them? A lot of uh, what we, uh, what I've been covering, the main source of information that I start with is usually information that is available through police logs and court dockets. And from that, you can get an idea of, uh, you can see what has been happening and, and very quickly you can tell which are the events or the cases that are going to be really interesting or uh, are really important. And those are the ones that I would focus on. When you have that basic information, then you, in the case of the courts, you look and see what documents may have been filed in court. Then you also would talk with uh, you know, the attorneys that are involved, sometimes the, the parties themselves that are, that are the subject of the case, because I've covered both civil cases and, and uh, criminal ones. With the police, uh, you obviously uh, have some basic information that you get from the log, and then you talk with uh, somebody, you know, the police chief or some other spokesman in the department to get more information and more detail. And once you, I've been able to get some of that basic information together, then I go back to the editors and say, okay, this is what this story uh, is like. This is the information we have. And then the editors decide on how they want to use that story in the, in the next day's paper, what other angles do they think that I, as the reporter, need to check out before I actually start doing the writing. So it's sort of following the basics. Every once in a while, I stumble onto a story, but most of the time when, uh, when I find the stories that we're going to be writing about, it's just the experience of having done it going through a routine on a regular basis and keeping tabs on what's happening in either a police department or in a courthouse. Could you explain how the Sapri and Murray cases unfolded, beginning with the first clue you got, that there might be a circumstance here worth investigating? With the Sapri case, we knew that there was a untimely death. We didn't know the circumstances, but we knew that there was somebody who had been found in their apartment and that that person was dead. The next major event that happened with that 
was that the police, about two days later, or maybe three, named Mr. Sapri as a person of interest in the case. And they began to do aerial surveillance in, in, in an effort to try and locate him. Uh, they even uh, put out robocalls to people who had landlines in the uh, Laconia phone exchange to basically lock down and stay in their homes because uh, they were unsure as to his whereabouts. Obviously, at that point, we began to you know, work the story. And one of the things was to figure out, well, where did, where did he live? We were able to sort of determine, you know, the house where he resided and, uh, you know, talk to neighbors. You know, what did they know about him? You know, it was an effort to, you know, talk to neighbors of the apartment complex where the victim was found. About a week after the victim was uh, killed, Mr. Sapri was taken into custody. And and then the following week, then he was charged, and from then on, you, you followed the case through the courts. When was that uh, initial discovery of the deceased and, uh, and the manhunt? Was that the summer of 2020? It was actually in the spring of 2019. Huh. And it took uh, almost really three years. It took over three years to bring the case to trial for a couple of reasons. One, COVID came along, and that caused the work of the courts to stop altogether for several weeks. And then once it resumed, it was resuming at a much slower pace. The other thing was that the uh, Mr. Sapri's uh, defense lawyer was asking for more time in order to look at how I think he was planning to provide a defense for his client. And so uh, Mr. Sapri was waiving his rights to a speedy indictment. I don't have it in front of me, but I think he was not, he wasn't indicted until like a year, a year and a half after he was taken into custody, which is much longer than usual. Normally uh, here in New Hampshire, a defendant is uh, indicted within three months of being arrested. But in this case, the defense asked for more time and the prosecution was uh, open to that. And so it took as long as it did to bring him to trial. So while you've been trying to keep your tabs on the Sapri trial, we had another case develop with John Murray in West Alton. Can you describe how that went and how that story came about? Well, uh, Mr. Murray was uh, arrested. And when we found out about his arrest, by going to the courthouse, we were able to obtain an affidavit. You will find in many criminal cases where the police or a prosecutor will lay out the some information that they have that they believe gives them probable cause to arrest somebody and to uh, and to charge them and in this particular case this affidavit spelled out in in rather explicit detail the allegations against Mr. Murray of how he allegedly had uh, sexually assaulted uh, teenage employees who worked at the marina where he was the manager. And it was uh, based on that that we did the initial story. Subsequently, he was he was indicted. All this time, he has been held in the uh, Belknap County Jail. And now it's uncertain when he's going to come to trial because just the last week, he was charged for violating a federal law with regard to child pornography for some of the 
images that he allegedly had these youngsters provide him of themselves. And now the attorneys are trying to get a better idea of how the federal case and the state's case are going to work before they actually bring him to trial. And right now it appears that he was scheduled to go on trial this month, but now it looks like it'll be sometime next spring. Can you bring us up to speed on the Sapri case? Well, right now, Mr. Sapri is, uh, to back up a bit, Mr. Sapri uh, went on trial in August. The trial was uh, listed to run about two weeks, and the most significant part of that case was almost certainly going to be the testimony of the two expert psychiatrists, one for the prosecution and one for the defense. Mr. Sapri's attorney is making the case that Mr. Sapri, when he was a youngster, the family lived in Iraq, and he witnessed some horrific violence, including car bombs, in addition also that his father was kidnapped at one point and was tortured. Ultimately, the family was able to pay ransom to the uh, group that kidnapped him, and the father was released. But after about a week's testimony, and at that point the psychiatrist had yet to be called, the case stopped. After a three days, or actually two days, of just waiting to see if the trial was going to resume, the judge declared a mistrial. On the very day that she did that, she put in a request that he have a competency evaluation, which would be, you know, to have him examined to see if he is competent to stand trial. The request for that, everything that's happened since then has been sealed. So only the attorneys and the judge can see whatever has been filed in that case since then. And right now there's a, uh, I think, a sort of a preliminary conference to deal with the status of the case, which is now scheduled for December. You know, and maybe once that hearing is held, then uh, we'll have a clearer idea of when that case is going to resume. And of course, there's still the open question, will it resume? If he's found that he's not competent to stand trial, then could be a very long delay. We've had some high-profile court cases in this market before, but it strikes me that this is an unusual circumstance where there's these two that seem to be co-occurring at the same time. What is it like for you to try and present what's happening from a factual and straightforward point of view and yet also make it appear as, tell it as a story to a, for the readers, to make it readable and understandable as opposed to a an incremental or uh, mechanical story about how the justice system is going about its work. When I approach any story, I always want to ask myself the question, why should the reader care? Why should you care about this particular case? I think in both of these instances, both men have been charged, and they are, and I must stress, they are innocent until they're proven guilty but they have been charged with very serious crimes. And I think it's important to let readers know how does the system and how do the, the various people that are involved in it deal with these kinds of situations when they come up? How do the police and the prosecutors proceed in preparing and presenting a case of this magnitude? sure that if you were to talk to lawyers, they would say that every case is important. But there's a lot that rides on these cases because, among other things, 
I mean, there's probably more than the average amount of, per, of uh, public interest, but also there's a heck of a lot that's hanging over the head of the accused. If the accused is found guilty, you're talking about someone who's going to be spending a lot of time in prison, perhaps in the case of Mr. Sapri, uh, the rest of his life. And so because of the consequences of the outcome, I think it's important to provide people with information on, you know, just how are these types of cases, particularly ones that are particularly serious and, you know, how are they handled? I think people sometimes, if they don't get to understand these things, whether it's by reading about them in a paper or hearing about them, whether it's uh, on radio or in television broadcasts, it's very easy then for the public to have a, an inaccurate or distorted notion of how the criminal justice system works. You know, that's, uh, so for that reason, I think it's important from the standpoint of just public education and public information so people understand how their society functions and how these services are there to try and, in these cases, bring justice, uh, where there's a question of the uh, allegations that something very wrong took place. How, do, how are people held to account? And how do you vet the accusations to determine whether or not they're well-founded? But I think also the other thing, if I may add, I think I've always worked in a small town or small city type of environment. And unlike maybe with reporters, say, with larger news organizations, when I start covering something at the beginning, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be covering it step by step by step by step and that the paper is going to be reporting on it as those steps take place, rather than sometimes in uh, when reporters in larger news organizations might get sent out, say, to the Sapri case, but they might be there for one day and then they don't come back again for, you know, several months. That's understandable that with the, with the kind of news organization that they work for, that's how they'll handle it. But, you know, we handle it each step along the way, and I think, I think that help, can help to get the reader to have a better understanding of, uh, you know, just how the system is working. What's that like for you as a journalist, but really more as a, as a human being, to live with these facts, with these processes in your, in your mind all week? Does, it, does this kind of reporting weigh on you? It can. I think the main thing that I have to be careful of is to be listening and be attentive to, you know, everything that is happening and being said, not to prejudge an outcome. You know, reporters were subject to the same tendency to feel sympathy toward one side or maybe another. But what I want to be sure of and what I am self-critical, am I really giving a balanced and complete account of what is happening and not showing, you know, favoritism or in this case, like sympathy of one side over the other. I think, you know, the other thing that can be thinking down the road, let's say that Mr. Murray does come to trial. I mean, there's always the possibility that he may offer to plead guilty, but if, he, if his case comes to trial, his victims are going to be, or his alleged victims, are going to be on the witness stand, and they're going to be the main witnesses. I've never covered that kind of testimony. I've written about it after the fact. So I'm sure that it will have an effect. I can't imagine how it wouldn't. That being said, yes, report on what that alleged victim has to say about what they say happened, but at the same time recognizing that, you know, that the issue of Mr. Murray's guilt or innocence still remains to be decided. Courts and Cops is sort of an old school beat in that it would be 
common in legacy newspapers. But when we think of more progressive newsrooms, it, it is, tends to be more along the lines of what you described earlier, where a reporter might be sent out for a day or two, and, but we wouldn't see one reporter be dedicated to the courts and cops beat. Would you make the argument that it's worth keeping a specific reporter assigned to this beat? Yes, because I think it's a way of covering a process. It's a way of making sure that the reader or the viewer or the listener at least gets to hear the complete story. You know, they not only hear the beginning, but they also at least hear the end, and preferably something that's going to happen in the middle as well. And I think it's very hard to accomplish that if you don't have somebody who is focusing on that, knows the processes, and knows how to keep abreast of developments. Otherwise, you're relying solely on a reader or a viewer or a listener who calls up the paper or the broadcaster and says, oh, have you, know, have you heard about this? And rather than having a reporter who's making sort of regular checks on whether it's what the police are doing or what's happening through the courts. And a lot of this, if you're working it as a beat, yes, a lot of it is routine. A lot of it can seem monotonous. And sometimes you can go through the process on a number of days and not really come up with anything that's really that important or that compelling. That's also how you make sure that you keep tabs with the things that are. And so I think, I think it is important. And it's just another form of local reporting. And if you don't have good local reporting, then it's very difficult for the average citizen or for any citizen to really have an idea of, you know, what's happening in their community. Have you seen public sentiment about this type of reporting change over the course of your career? I don't know as I've seen it change. I think when I was covering the uh, beginning of the Sapri case, before the trial itself got underway, I was covering the jury selection process. And the one thing that as individual members of the jury pool were being interviewed by the attorneys and in front of the judge to see whether or not they would be serving on the jury. One of the questions that was asked of, I think, all of them uh, was, you know, to what extent had they been exposed or had they drawn any, whether they had drawn any conclusions based on the news reports about the case that had, had appeared going back to 2019 when the, uh, the death occurred. And almost all of them said they hadn't read anything. And assuming they're telling the truth, I wonder sometimes, you know, how much people may be paying attention to things that are happening in their own community, because in order to find out about that, they, they got to pretty much read the newspaper or maybe catch it on local television station. I think when I started working in the Laconia area, there was more um, coverage of events that took place in Laconia. You had a, a daily newspaper here in the city. There were two other newspapers that were paper, the Union Leader, the Concord Monitor, who that maintained news offices in this city. There were two radio stations that were separately owned and competed for news coverage. I think probably there was more public attention to of what was happening because there were more ways in which you could get information. Now it's, you don't, you know, our paper is the only one that really covers the city in the immediate area with any consistency. 
and people have changed the way in which they get information. They access it through the internet, and so they're looking at getting their information in other ways than just listening to the local television broadcast or picking up a local newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that affects you know their interest. But I still think that even though I sometimes wonder how much people are paying attention to local developments, whether it's you're talking about crimes in courts or you're talking about municipal government, I still think it's important to be able to provide that information, you know, because I think it's essential for the functioning of a, of a democracy. Julie, do you have any questions? Mike, what else have you seen change about journalism in this area or in New Hampshire throughout the course of your career? Well, I've, the one thing that I've seen that has changed is I know that there is a great deal among some people, and, and I would say a growing number of people, a great deal of cynicism about the very work that journalists do. And that's, that's very disheartening. I haven't had too many people who've confronted me and claimed that, you know, and accused me of being, you know, part of fake news or that kind of rhetoric. But, uh, you know, it's obviously out there, and I do catch it on the rebound from time to time. And I think that, you know, that's all I can say. It's very disheartening. I've never really let it discourage me from doing my job, and I still get a great deal of self-satisfaction out of doing it. But I think it's probably one of the biggest changes. And the other, I would say, is that the landscape of news gathering has changed. Every news gathering organization has gone through challenges that have affected uh, how they go about gathering news. Newspapers often, more often than not today, have much smaller news staffs than they had 15, 20 years ago. If you have smaller staffs, then obviously something's got to give somewhere. And a lot of that just simply has to go has to do with the the economics of the businesses. And I think it's probably, and I think it's true probably, in broadcasting, and particularly when it comes to to local news coverage. You know, one of the things that if I I don't want to go too far afield here, but I can I'm I'm young enough to remember. I wasn't working at a newspaper at the time, but I was interested in news coverage, and I was I was a senior in high school. But I can remember, for example, when, um, when Kennedy was assassinated, just about every single daily newspaper, particularly in, 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 in the eastern part of the United States, put out an extra edition when that happened, including the paper in Laconia. When 9-11 happened, no newspaper put out an extra. And what that illustrates is how people were getting news. It wasn't that people weren't interested, but where were they going for their information? In that particular case, uh, in 9-11, they were, you know, going to television. And they were glued to their TV sets. You know, it's part of a, a bigger picture of how news coverage, particularly in this business of newspapers, has changed. I once knew someone who said, you never realize there's a revolution going on when you're in the middle of it. <laughs> and I think that's probably true with regard to uh, certainly newspapers. We've been going through a tremendous sea change in the way we gather news, the way we present the news. But I, you know, unless you, unless you uh, go out there and get the information right about it, then, 
there's no other way that the public can be informed and have some reasonable expectation that they're being informed by people who are going about their jobs with a certain amount of discipline and integrity. Any closing thoughts for you, Mike? You know, I just hope that there will continue to be people who are looking at, you know, their careers, what they might do, who would continue to find this field challenging and rewarding and important. I think we hope so, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, I think we learned a lot today about what it's like to cover the courts and cops beat in New Hampshire, and we're looking forward to many more conversations with journalists around our state about their granite beats. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.